Wine Work and Passion is brought to you by the Napa Valley Wine Academy, America's premier wine school and two-time winner of the WSET Global Wine Educator of the Year Award. You can find a course that's right for you at NapaValleyWineAcademy.com and use the code in our show notes for a special discount. Welcome, wine enthusiasts and job seekers. I'm your host, Karen Wetzel, and Wine Work and Passion is the podcast where we inspire you to make a career out of your passion for wine. My very special guests today are both winemakers at the famed Domaine Carneros Winery in the Carneros region of Napa Valley. Zach Miller leads the sparkling wine team, and TJ Evans is in charge of Pinot Noir production. Their journeys into winemaking are quite different, but mutually inspiring. They'll share their wine stories and give us the inside scoop on what it takes to make iconic sparkling wine and world-class Pinot Noir. And the best part is they'll tell you how to get your start toward following in their footsteps. So if you have ever wondered what it takes for a wine to go from grape to glass, this episode will not disappoint. So let's meet Zach and TJ. Hi guys, welcome to Wine, Work, and Passion. Thanks for being my guest today. Can you tell us who you are and what you do in the wine industry? Hi Karen, thanks for having us. It's exciting to be here. My name's Zach Miller. I'm the sparkling winemaker at Domaine Carneros. Great, great. And how about you, TJ? Tell us who you are. Uh, great to meet you, Karen. Really happy to be here today. Um, yeah, my name's TJ Evans. Uh, I make the Pinot Noir here at Domaine Carneros. Uh, I also work a lot on the farming side, growing the grapes. Oh, great. Well, that's a bonus for us today. Thank you very much. Um, so I'd like to tell the audience, you know, why we're all here today. So um, I'm, I'm full disclosure, I'm a member and avid consumer of Domaine Canaris Wines and we're members there. In fact, was just there yesterday with my niece and five of her friends. Um, we It's always a must have, must do when we have guests always up go up to the castle on the hill, Domaine Carneros. But anyway, um, you know, we, we've we had a winemaker or two on, but not in the capacity that you guys are. You know, you specialize in Pinot Noir and sparkling wine. And with the holidays coming, I thought it's really a good time to talk about that because we really haven't, we haven't had a chance to dive into production and, and all that. And you have really interesting stories. So, um, before we get into your story, how about telling us what was in your glass the last time you had a glass of wine? So, uh, TJ, you go first. <laughs> uh, well, I had a little lunch yesterday with an employee um, talking about career development, and we were sipping on a little Burgundy from the Haute Cote de Bonne. It was a Michel Gros. It was just a village wine, so it was a very simple wine. But it was a monopole and it was from 60 year old vines. So it it was um, it was very pleasant, very charming. And it went nicely with the paella. Wow. I'm jealous. It sounds wonderful. <laughs> and uh, Zach, what was in your glass? Uh, yeah, well, I kind of went off the beaten path. Not normal for us. We usually drink a lot of bubbles, as you might imagine, Um and the standard fare, but my wife's specialty is Italian varietals, and we got a really beautiful 2017 Brunello. Um, 
And yeah, it was tasting really well. It was, it went nice <laughs> with the meal. You guys are breaking my heart over here. <laughs> you just mentioned two of my very favorite wines. I, I guess I have a lot of favorites though. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. Let's, let's tell the audience more about you. So Zach, tell us your story for, you know, how'd you get into wine? What's your background? Tell us what we need to know to get to know you better. Okay, so um, if you're interested in the unorthodox version of how you wind your way to winemaking, that that I think is my story. So um, I grew up in Virginia, uh, attended Virginia Tech uh, for forestry, and that's where my wife and I met. And post-college, my college roommate lived in Chico outside of Sacramento, so we were kind of bouncing around the country trying to figure out what we wanted to do with our lives. Um, and we came to visit him and did a tourist trip to Napa. And at that point, um, we'd lived in quite a few places around the country. We were in um, Gainesville, Florida. I was working for forestry consultant company and my wife was working for the USGS. And we got some insider tours through some connections we randomly had. And at that point, she decided this is what she wanted to do. She could do this. We had the background or she specifically felt she could do it with the background that she had. And we packed up our pickup and drove out here. And that, you know, that was kind of the beginning. Um, you know, I got a job in the cellar, uh, because that's, we got here in August and harvest is coming on and I really dug it. And we, you know, then we started, going to the Southern hemisphere and back to the Northern hemisphere and meeting people and networking and working at different wineries and did that for a few years until, um, I landed at Domain Carneros. So, you know, it was kind of happenstance and, and, and a little bit of luck stars being aligned, but it was, um, really something that, that kind of found us in a way. So, so then, you know, I mean, that was 15 vintages ago. I landed here at Domain Carneros and um, have been here ever since. I I cut my teeth making Pinot Noir, and that was kind of where my career started. So, um, you know, Domain Carneros was interesting in that it was, uh, you know, a different use of Pinot Noir as well as a positive use for Chardonnay in my in my view. <laughs> and so... Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you and, on that point. <laughs> and so, yeah, it, it worked. Uh, it, it worked out really well, and, and and here we are today. That's great. That's a great story. And and you know, I think you have to be a bit of a risk taker. At least in your circumstance, you had to be a risk taker, and that's really cool. I think that's a great story. So, TJ, tell us a little bit about your story. Yeah, I mean. It's funny because we're all chatting and having this conversation and, and none of us are from California. Um, you know, right. exactly. There's a reason that the population of California has doubled from basically about 20 million to about 40 million since the 1980s. And it's because once you get here, you don't really want to leave. But um, I was born in Massachusetts. Um, I went to college in Massachusetts and uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I studied anthropology and um, when I got interested in wine, I kind of got really, really interested. So basically, I went back to university and I got a BS in chemistry. And then I went up to Davis and got my master's in enology. 
Um, but that's ancient history. That's probably almost 30 years ago. I got about 30 vintages under my belt now. So it's, um, it's been an amazing journey. Um, like Zach, we, I did a lot of stages. We call our internship stages and it's an opportunity to travel around the world. And, um, you know, I've been, I've worked in Chile and France and all kinds of places, but you know, it really clicked for me when I got my first job, I was hired at La Crema. Um, which is a small family owned winery up in, uh, <laughs> Windsor. but that's, that's where I got the Pinot Noir bug and it's just been an incredible journey ever since then. So I, I look forward to telling you more about just my incredible joy and passion and love of Pinot Noir and how I will try and convert all your listeners to become lovers of Pinot Noir. <laughs> is this going to be like a sideways commercial? <laughs> it might be. Just kidding. So it's really funny. You know, I'm glad you guys talked about how many years you've been making wine, how many vintages, because somebody said to me one time, most winemakers only only work 40 vintages. So you're putting your expertise to work 40 times, period, in your life or whatever, however long you decide to stay in it. And, you know, I don't, I don't think there's very many jobs where you are using your greatest skill 40 times over the life of a career. I think that's pretty interesting. Um, and of course, everything's always changing. Everything's new again and everything's old again. You know, we're always evolving in the world of wine. So it's sort of like being a doctor, I would assume. You have to keep up with the latest trends, the latest technology, what the consumers want, what you know, I think that's, I think it's a very interesting job for that reason. You put a lot of effort into 40 vintages is my point. <laughs> Karen, I couldn't agree with you more. And it's such a peculiar facet of our industry. And like, I often think about it, that you only practice this craft once a year. So you right. might've been doing like, like you eloquently said, you, you might have been doing it for 40 years, but you've only done it 40 times. And right, I think there's just, I, I think of, how much I've learned in my career, winemaking, how my style has evolved and changed and grown. And I think about the challenges that we face, especially recently, you know, we've, we have incredible challenges with labor pressure in California, with smoke and fire and drought. And you really lean on all that experience. I, I, if I imagine if I had broken into the industry as a winemaker with in the last few vintages, you know, I, I rely a lot on my, experience and training to get through those tough times. Yeah, for sure. Yep. That's yeah. And you know, let's say you, obviously you do more than just make wine for a month <laughs> and, and, you know, and after harvest, you know, there's all kinds of things to do all year long. Um, but the production, just the actual putting it all together is just that one, that one time a year. So, so let's talk about Domain Carneros and, and actually either one of you, whoever wants to start this, um, let's talk about what who Domain Carneros is um, and why it's such a special place here in Napa. Well, Domain yeah, Carneros, yeah, Domain Carneros was started in 1987 by uh, Champagne Tatege. They wanted to have a a presence in the new world, and so um, that that was the beginning the the original plot where the chateau is in Carneros and. Um, you know, with an emphasis on sparkling wine, because that's what they made. They are, are a champagne house. 
Uh, so, you know, over the years, we've grown a little bit. We're still 100% in Carneros. Um, you know, we have 400 estate acres that uh, we control the, the fruit on. And over that time, you know, TJ can probably tell you the story. But over that time, the Pinot Noir, it was started as a sparkling house, but the Pinot Noir came about as its own entity as well, being that we grow Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. So, you know, I think the the special thing to really point out, Domain Carneros, we are a grower producer in the classical sense of the word. We are a sense of place, you know, we're entirely in Carneros and, and that's what we're making, Carneros um, sparkling wine or Carneros Pinot Noir. Um and the other point that I think is important to note is that in Champagne, you have the big three varietals and, you know, being Chardonnay, Pinot Noir and Pinot Meunier. Um, but in Champagne, without going into all the details, Pinot Meunier is essentially the insurance grape and we don't really need that here. So, of course, being French started, we we started with all three, but over time we've been able to drop the Meunier and we just focus on the two best being Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. And that, of course, growing Pinot Noir leads itself to making uh, still Pinot Noir and that that's where we are today. Right. Well, and it gives you some versatility too. TJ, anything you want to add about, about Domaine Carneros as a whole? Well, I, I just want to chime in on, on sort of how the Pinot Noir program got started and if you'll just indulge me it's a short story but i it's a fun story and i i think it's worth telling um you know if you remember karen back in the 90s which isn't that long ago right pinot noir was really in its infancy but there was another grape that was rivaling to be the next popular grape and it was syrah and we were really at a pivot point here um you know because as growers we're trying to figure out we want it takes a long time to you know plant a vine and bring up the grapes and make the wine. And anyway, so there was kind of a pivot point. And um, for a long time, I thought Syrah was going to be the next great variety for California. I even worked a vintage in Hermitage because I was so convinced that Syrah was going to, was going to be the next big thing. But anyway, um, you know, Eileen had an assistant and he was always tinkering around in the back and he, one year, it was 1991. He made two barrels of Pinot Noir. And believe it or not, Claude Tatinger was walking through the winery on a visit. And he sees these two barrels and he goes, well, we don't use oak in the sparkling. What are those? I want to taste them. He loved the wine. He loved the wine so much. And at this time, the Tatinger family owned the Hotel du Crayon, which is in Paris. It's in front of the Louvre in the Place de la Concorde. And that hotel is one of the best hotels in the world. It's still owned by the royal Saudi family. And if you want, after you go to Paris and you're done looking at art in the Louvre, you can go across the street and there's a bar there called the Ambassador Bar where you can have a a drink in in the hotel. But anyway, Claude Tainter loved that Pinot Noir so much that we bottled up all the wine and sent it to France and he sold it in the hotel. And so that was really a pivotal moment because it really brought Pinot Noir onto the radar of the Tatinger family. And so for us, growing Chardonnay and growing Pinot Noir and making sparkling wine, it was a natural evolution to add the Pinot Noir still wine. And so from that, those two barrels in 1991, 
we've now I now produce about 500 barrels of Pinot Noir per year. That's amazing. That's a great thank you for that story. I've never heard. I've been to your winery a thousand times. I've never heard that story, and I really appreciate it very much. You mentioned Eileen. Uh, can you tell us who Eileen is? Eileen is a founding winemaker um, at Domaine Carneros. So we started in 1987. Um, Claude was running you know, Champagne Tantage at the time, and uh, they put out a you know it was a big search to find to find their their winemaker and they selected Eileen. So she's really an icon in the industry. If you don't know who Eileen is, you don't know Napa in some senses or, or sparkling wine. Um, you know, briefly her, her, she worked at a few places making bubbly. She in fact started Gloria Ferrer over in Sonoma and then she started Domaine Carneros. So the fact that she has two wineries to her credit is pretty, pretty insane. Um, you know, starting them and I mean, starting them as in building the buildings <laughs> and wow. starting from the scratch. And so she really built this brand by the end of her tenure, she was, uh, you know, founding winemaker and CEO and, um, Everything that Domaine Carneros is, is really a, a testament to, to what she accomplished, you know, and we got to work with her for the final 12 years of her career, you know, before she retired. And, you know, it's, it kind of goes back to what you're saying. You get one crack at it a year. And so having somebody with 30, 40 years of experience is invaluable because as a young winemaker, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You don't have to learn the same things through, you know, I don't want to say the same mistakes, but you don't have to make mistakes. You can glean that knowledge from the experienced um, people in the community or, or winemakers, and then you can advance on and use technology. And so it's really invaluable to have someone with that level of experience. Yeah, she is such such a historic figure, and I didn't want to let that pass by without... Uh, giving giving her credit where credit is, is due. Um, also, um, TJ, you mentioned, you know, the idea that you plant grapes, you plant vines, and it takes a while before you get fruit. Can you get a, just give our audience an idea from the time you plant a vine to the day you can start making wine with it? How long does that take? You know, the short answer is it takes at least four years. Um, and what the process is really starting with understanding the site, the climate, the soil, and then first step is really selecting a rootstock, which is going to match the vigor for the type of wine that you're trying to make. And then I always joke at Domaine Corneros that we only grow two grapes. We just grow Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, but that's a little bit, not the whole story. Believe it or not, we have 20 different types of Pinot, Pinot Noir on the ground and, and 16 types of Chardonnay. And that's really a driving factor in all the complexity of flavor that you see in the sparkling blends and in the unique and different bottlings of the Pinot Noirs that we do. So once we've got the rootstock and we've got the green growing part of the vine, then you've got to get it, get them in the ground. And, and young vines are like, um, they're young, like small children. They take a lot of care and feeding. Um, they need to be trained in a way with it's interesting with with vineyards because when people see a vineyard they typically see this homogeneous thing but what i see when i see a vineyard is i really see a forest and a forest is really made up of individual trees 
And for us, we're really going for consistency, evenness, the way I envision getting deep flavor and concentration and power and wine is from having grapes that all ripen evenly. And it's very, very critical in those young training stages to bring up the the vines in a way where you're not overburdening them with producing a lot of fruit. You want to develop all that energy down into the root structure so you get a really strong, healthy base. And um, so we'll usually drop drop the fruit in the first couple of years, and then we'll start with maybe one ton an acre. And then by the fourth year, you're, you're harvesting those grapes and making the first wine. And then, you know, if it's going into a Pinot Noir, you can add another year or so of that before it gets into the bottle. And if it's sparkling, it's going to be another at least three years. So it's a long endeavor. You really have to understand the timeline and have a lot of patience um, to see it through. Yeah. And that, you know, commercially, that's really important to know because, you know, Americans tend to change their tastes every, you know, five or six years as far as what their favorite varietal is or whatever. And we can't just flip a switch. I mean, we can, we can change what we're planting, but it's not tomorrow. Right. And, and so we have to, by the, sometimes by the time we're able to make wine from those vines, the consumers onto another one. So right. I, I always say, Karen, we're not trying to make wine the fastest. We're trying to make it the best. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So I like to point that out because there is so much that goes into it and, and consumers don't always realize, you know, it's not, uh, it's not like picking apples. Mm. <laughs> so not quite the same. So let's go back now and uh, let's talk about the, we have, I have, we have two wines that we're going to talk about today and I'm lucky enough to have them so I can taste along. So, um, Zach, why don't you talk, let's, we're going to taste sparkling first. So why don't you talk a little bit more about sparkling wine production? Um, and you know, the technique, talk about traditional method, why that's so important. Um, and maybe, you know, uh, what you do that's unique or special. And I, in the meantime, I, and then tell us about the wine because I am enjoying a glass as we speak. <laughs> Excellent. Um, yeah, well, uh, it's worth noting that all our wines are made in the traditional method, um, which is to say that the fermentation, the second fermentation is completed in the bottle. And that is really the, you know, that's the, the, the gold standard, the, the, the process that was identified you know, by the monks way back when. And, um, it's really, there's a couple other ways to make wine, you know, infusing the, the carbon dioxide and, and using a pressure tank, um, much in the way, the easy way to explain that it's like carbonating, you know, a a Coke or a Pepsi, you know, it's the, the big bubbles. So the real hallmark of a traditional method fermentation in the bottle is the extremely small bubbles and that's um you know uh you know you yeah. you joke there's a lot of different aspects to the different styles but if you have the small bubbles you're usually onto a a, a more quality producer and yeah and- they, they're they're softer on the palate uh when you're using traditional when you're drinking a traditional method wine they're softer they last longer they look more beautiful um, you don't have to etch a, a scratch in the bottom of your glass like a lot of a lot of us wine people do to trick yeah. people. Um, it's you know they're I'm looking at them right now and they just evoke a celebration or I mean it's what is it ten, 10 o'clock here in the morning 
here at Napa. We'll just celebrate the beautiful day we're having. Really, really beautiful wine. Um, I wanted to mention, you talked about uh, pri first primary fermentation and secondary fermentation. A lot of people don't realize when we make traditional method sparkling wine, we actually make regular wine first. We just start off with a plain old still wine. And it's not until we bottle it in the bottle that it'll ultimately be sold in. And then we add a little more yeast, a little more sugar, and we put the crown cap on it. And then it does its magic again. That's where we capture the CO2. It dissolves into the wine. Um, so it's a very natural process, um, which makes the, that's one of the reasons why the bubbles are so elegant. Sorry, I wasn't trying to steal your thunder. I wanted, yeah. I didn't want to skim over that because I teach, you know, I teach WSET. And when I tell people we start with still wine, they're usually pretty shocked by that. Yeah, so. absolutely. We're going to, we're going to press the sparkling wine off the juice from the skins immediately when it comes in. And, and then we're going to have um, the, the juice in the tank and we're going to ferment it pretty much like you would any white wine in a stainless tank. And then it's that, then, you know, then we'll go through the blending process, but it's that second fermentation. We put it in bottle, as you mentioned, with the, with the yeast and the liqueur and you have in a normal fermentation, the CO2, one of the byproducts just dissipates, you know, into the atmosphere, but in the bottle it's trapped and the CO2 becomes dissolved in the, in the aqueous solution, which is the wine. And that gives you your bubbles in that process of the fermentation in the bottle and the aging, you know, really makes those fine integrated bubbles that you were mentioning. It's, it's much more aesthetically pleasing. It's much more texturally pleasing, you know, Very the much. flavors are more integrated. And it's also worth noting that we, um, we age our, all our bubbly, all our vintage dated bubbly sparkling wines for a minimum of three years, which is the French vintage date law, uh, 36 months. Um, we don't really have to here, but we were started by the Tatages and, and it's, um, and you know, I really feel like it's a, a real quality stamp that we adhere to that still to this day. That being said, our Blanc de Blanc, um, which, uh, which we call La Rev is hundred percent Chardonnay needs more time than that. And so we age that one at least six years and that's the wine you're enjoying now. Um, it has, uh, right. you know, 2015, it's more, it's seven years at this point. So, yeah. Right. And when you're saying you're aging the wine for three years minimum, you mean you're aging it in contact with the yeast that was put in that bottle. So the yeast is, so it's getting Lee's contact. Lee's are the spent yeast cells. Um, and what does that, what does that do for the wine? Why three years? I mean, what, what, what happens with that, those flavors? That's correct. So yeah, we talked about the first fermentation, then we put it in bottle for the second fermentation. The aging I'm referring to is between that second fermentation and the, the next process, which is, uh, disgorging. So, um, the longer you leave, the, the fermentation is going to take, you know, six weeks, maybe two months. Um, it, it happens relatively quickly in the bottle, um, in the grand scheme of things when we're, we're talking three years or more. Um, right. you know, but we are going to leave the, the bottles are laying on their side. There's the yeast, the, the, the wine is in contact with the yeast lees and that just imparts more, flavor 
more depth and and the wine just gets more interesting we we have our regular releases we also do uh late disgorged releases which is an additional two years so exact same wine and one is aged for two more years in the bottle and you can taste them side by side and and that's what i recommend that's the real um the aha as to what a couple more years just sitting on the lees undisturbed will do for the flavor profile and the um you know in the complexity of the wine right right and putting my wset instructor hat on you know one of the things that we learn that the students learn is with a sparkling wine that's been aged on the lees the dead yeast for a, a while that yeast starts to sort of disintegrate or self-digest and it leaves these notes of bread or biscuit or toasted bread. Um, and that's really the hallmark as I'm, as I'm enjoying this Lorev six years on the lease, it's really, um, you really notice that in, in a very pleasant, very, very pleasant way. And that's why when you look at your SAT card for WSET, you'll look under autolytic quality. Well, that's the autolysis is where that, that yeast is, you know, giving off all of those aromas and, and it's things like bread and toast and even yogurt and that type of thing. So anyway, um, mm-hmm. like to just connect the dots because we have so many students that enjoy the podcast. So we want to connect that dot for them. And really the, the aromas, just even just the aromas, but the flavors too, just yeah. that beautiful, subtle, toastiness and and toastiness you know you mentioned you don't age your wine in oak there's no oak the toastiness in champagnes or in sparkling wines like this are coming from the from the the autolysis the the time spent on the yeast right that's correct i think um you know because we give them the proper aging we're we're able to to forego the oak um lots of places will use oak on bubbly and it's just a different um it's a different, you know, profile and, and that's fine. Ours was kind of started from the beginning. The Tatages were never huge Oak fans. And in the early days when Claude and Eileen would be tasting through the story goes that Claude, they did some Oak trials and they're sitting there tasting them. And he looks at her and he says, when you have the finest caviar, you don't add eggs and onions. And so that's our philosophy is that, yeah, it's stainless in the first fermentation and glass in the second because <laughs> it's in the bottle and right. um, no oak, but we give it the proper time to, to develop those, those flavors. And, you know, I'd also mention that the Larev, although it's a Blanc de Blanc, it's made in the old world style of a Blanc de Blanc where it's our Tete de Cuvée. Um, I feel like anybody can throw some Chardonnay together and call it a Blanc de Blanc, but really going above and beyond to have the the very top Chardonnay, um, you know, expressed in your in your Tete de Cuvée is is right. um, right. a labor of love that that we got from the Tatejes. Right, and when when you see the term Blanc de Blanc on a label, it it literally translates to to white white from white. So you're, it's a white wine where champagne, uh, spark, sparkling wines that don't say Blanc de Blanc are probably a blend of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, correct? Yeah. Yeah. And Meunier, depending on the, depending on where you're Yeah. Um, right. Right. Yeah. And one more question about the Lorev. So as I enjoy this beautiful wine, 
Um, it is so the things so far we've talked about that are unique is that it is 100% Chardonnay and it gets six six years uh, aging on the bottle with the lees. Mm-hmm. Is it, it where is it coming from? Is it coming from a special part of your vineyard? Um, well, we're going to assess each each um so each block we have you know 400 acres and and tj can talk to our vineyards a little bit more um with the pinot noir we have over 100 individual blocks and um well among our different clones our different sites our different rootstock and so we're going to pull these blocks in separately um you know our winemaking philosophy on both sides um sparkling and and still is you can always blend and you can't unblend so fermenting the blocks individually as much as we can um, gives us options when we go to blending. So then we're going to sit down with all these components and we're going to assess the quality. That being said, getting to your question, there are some certain blocks that um, make it into the Larev, call it four out of five years. Um, and those are pretty, pretty, you know, the ones we kind of lean on, there's other blocks that might go in two out of five and there's always you know a wild card block that will have a good year out of um out of nowhere and make it one year but not really be one of those um staples so there are some really excellent blocks that we know and identify and and kind of lean on however each vintage is going to give us what it gives us and our goal is to make the very best uh, best wine, the very best Blanc de Blanc we can make. And so it, it's a little of both. There's some, there's some staples and there's, um, there's always vintage variation. Okay. I got one more question for you, TJ. Hang hang tight. We're getting back to you in a second. So Zach, a burning question. What type of glass do you prefer drinking your sparkling wines from? Oh, everyone's favorite question. Well, there's the classic (laughs) flute. And then, um, you know, and then there's the white wine glass uh, that everyone seems to be going to. And, um, you know, I think that does open it up. The advantage of the flute is you have the point at the bottom, you know, the advantage of the white wine glass, you can really get your nose into it. Um, it does dissipate a little earlier. My, my feeling, my kind of personal philosophy on the popularity of the white wine glass is it's driven by restaurants, by psalms at restaurants and they want to consolidate glassware and <laughs> if they have all these different glassware they you know they need more glassware they're washing more glassware by going to an all-purpose white wine glass they they kind of minimize that it's not you know necessarily wrong i think there are some advantages to it but my favorite is the tulip shape it's kind of the best of both worlds you're kind of it opens up a little bit bigger than the classic flute yet it doesn't um open up as much as the white wine glass so so i yeah. like having the specific tulip myself <laughs> yeah riddell has definitely taken advantage of the trend and now they've got a hybrid that's sort of a cross between a white wine glass and a and a champagne flute. It's sort of a diamond shape. And I agree. The thing I don't like about a white wine glass, I love the aromas. You you definitely get more aromatic, but the bubbles don't seem to last as long as in a flute. And it also doesn't have that fancy, you know, there's something about holding that flute that 
just makes it kind of fancy. Yeah, <laughs> there is a nostalgic element to it. Right, right, right. <laughs> well, well, thanks so much, Zach. That, that's been really helpful. So, TJ, let's turn to you now and all this great Pinot Noir that you're making. Tell us about, you know, what what's important for us to know, it, you know, in the vineyard and the winery, you know, what's your specialty? I do want to say while we're talking about this, they yeah. didn't forget me. <laughs> and I am, I mean, I know you, you guys can't see me, but I am drinking the famous Gate Pinot Noir 2019. So we can talk about that as well. So anyway, sorry to interrupt. No, Karen, I hope you like it. Um, I think the first step I would suggest for your listeners is really to sort of look on a map and understand where Domain Carneros is. Domain Carneros were we're about 40 miles, 35 miles as the crow flies, a little bit north and north by northeast of San Francisco. And we're really hugging the San Pablo Bay. And it's really, really critical. Um, the climate is just so important for, for the Pinot Noir. And we get a lot of fog that rolls up from the bay. And we get a lot of breezes off the Pacific Ocean that come in through Petaluma called the Petaluma Wind Gap. And it's really critical. It's this almost unbelievable diurnal fluctuation in temperature that that keeps the grape allows the grapes to cool off at night and and ripen really slowly. So if you if you picture where we are, you know the chateau is located on the road between Napa and Sonoma, and as Zach said, we have 400 acres, and we have six different non-contiguous ranches that are all within five miles of the winery. And when you think about Carneros. There's one common denominator of the soil, and that's clay, but there's also one variable, and that's the amount of clay. And we have ranches that are 15% clay all the way up to 85% clay. And that's a lot of, when people think of Burgundy, they often talk of, of limestone, but the more common soil in Burgundy is marl, and it's a mix of limestone and clay. And I think that's what, that's really critical for for growing the Pinot Noir because of the water holding capacity, because of the slickness on the finish. And so, Karen, you're enjoying that 2019 Famous Gate, which is one of my favorite wines. Um, it's basically, you can trace the DNA of Domaine Carneros all the way back to the beginning with the Famous Gate. And if you've never been to Carneros and you say, well, TJ, what is Carneros? What does Carneros taste like? I would say, take a sip of this wine. Because here... At Domain Carneros, you know, we want the wine to be fruity. Of course it's fruity. It's sunny here. But we also want you to taste the soil and taste the terroir and taste the spiciness, um, the tea leaf, the, the earthiness, the truffle. And so for me, when you get that combination of, of fruit and spiciness and that supple texture, that's what really excites me about Pinot Noir. Yeah, this wine... Um, I'm always so excited when it when it shows up in our in our club pack, <laughs> which, which we get several times a year. This is for sure. It's it was our it was the favorite of all eight of us yesterday. By the way, I'm glad to hear of, that of the Pinot Noirs. We really in, enjoy it. So you know, with Carneros, you're when you come. For those of you who don't know exactly where this is, when you come through the Golden Gate Bridge from San Francisco Airport. You're going to come across from Sonoma into your first and southern part of Sonoma, then you're crossover into Napa, and you're going to pass right by Domain Carneros. You cannot miss it. It's this beautiful castle, amazing place to visit. 
but it's also one of the few AVAs, American Viticultural Areas, you know, designated wine regions of Napa that cross over into Sonoma as well. But you are all on the Napa side, correct? You've harvested everything from Napa? Well, that's it's such an interesting point. Um, the Chateau is in Napa County. Right. And it's about, and the, and the county line, Sonoma is ab- almost about a mile just to the west. But our vineyards... We have three ranches in in the Napa side, the east side of Carneros, and three ranches on the Sonoma side of Carneros. Oh, you do. See, so while it's so while it's all in in Carneros, it's it's really and there's some there's a certain um, schizophrenia about that um, because the way that the marketing groups are set up, they they really go by county, and so. We're sort of like um, separate but different, but it is a, a unique feature of the Carneros AVA. Right. And interesting fun fact. So when you look at, we have 16 AVAs here in Napa, and we have a um, uh, a rule that like if it's Oakville, if you put Oakville on the label, which is bragging rights you want to put there, that you have to put Oakville, comma, Napa Valley. You don't with Carneros or Wild Horse AVA because that one also has some vineyards outside of the Napa Valley. And so if it just says Carneros, it can be from either, but literally you would never know the difference. I mean, they're, the the vineyards are excellent on both sides of the aisle. There's not like a big fence or anything that separates. No. I mean, we laugh. There's always a little competition between Napa and Sonoma, but that's not really the way it is in Carneros. You, you no, play it's- very well together. Karen, when the AVA was established, it was really based on the climate of the area. And yeah. so for us, it's that soil and climate and the topography is more important, a determining factor than it is the um, the political boundary. Right, right. Now for winemaking techniques, you know, I know with Pinot Noir, there could be cold maceration to coax out some color before fermentation. Then you've got the punch downs or the pump overs, you know, you've an oak to oak or not to oak or how much oak. Can you talk a little bit about your preferences in those, in those techniques? Yeah, I'd be happy to, you know, I I do want to kind of position this conversation. It's important to remember that, you know, we're making Pinot Noir in Napa and we are really we started out in the shadow of the Napa Valley and Cabernet Sauvignon is the king of the Napa Valley. And the first Pinot Noirs were made by Cabernet winemakers. And I can't think of two more polar opposite approaches than making Pinot Noir versus making Cabernet. And I think that was such a long, long process. Cabernet is so robust. Cabernet needs to be tamed. It needs more oxygen. The way we manage Pinot Noir, it's extremely anaerobic. You do more um, liquid movement of the cap and Cabernet. With Pinot Noir, it's all about being gentle. We destem the grapes. So first of all, well, let's start at the beginning. Um, we pick the grapes at night. We pick the grapes at night so that they come into the winery when they're cold. Then they go across a sorting table. Then they're destemmed. They're destemmed but not crushed. We want to get the whole berries into the fermentation. And then we'll do the cap management. You know, as the as the yeast get active, there's a lot of heat released. Temperature can be stratified, and we want to homogenize that tank. So we'll do a lot of physical manipulation of the cap, pushing the grapes back down into the liquid so we can extract all the color and flavor. Um, these are very ancient techniques, very simple techniques. 
Um, you really have to use your nose and your eyes and we're tasting the wines every day. Um, we do the whole process takes about 20 days. As you mentioned, we'll do a five day cold soak to, you know, do some pre-fermentation extraction. The fermentation will take 10 to 12 days and then we'll let the tank settle. And that's another five days for a total of about 20. And then so 20 once, days skin contact. That's correct. And then once that's over, um, we'll gently press, run the juice off, gently press the skins and, and we'll go straight to barrel with the, with the light leaves. Yeah. And that 20 days is important because Pinot Noir is a thinner, way thinner skin grape than Cabernet. If you were to taste, you know, if you taste a Pinot Noir grape, you can eat the skins pretty easily. But a Cabernet grape, you're chewing on those skins till you finally give up and, th- and spit them out because <laughs> they're so thick. So, yeah, I, you, know. I, you know, Karen, I don't want to give your listeners the wrong impression. I love Cabernet. Oh, I yeah. Love, I love Cabernet. But, you know, when I love it, I love it. I love the California Napa cabs from the 80s and the 90s because when you, it takes that long for them to evolve and have the subtlety, the supple texture, and the beauty that you get in Pinot Noir at, at an earlier stage. Yeah, that's true. And, and talk about aging. You know, we, we uh, We've been doing some tasting, going to different places. And, you know, some I think of Pinot Noir generally as not aged for terribly long in oak. I, I like a yeah. kiss of oak. Um, yeah. But I also know winemakers who will put it in a barrel for 22, 24 months. What's your philosophy on that? So we have different tiers. Um, we, ha- we make, you know, the Domaine Carneros portfolio is big. We do about 12 different types of bubbly and we make about 10 to 12 types of Pinot Noir. And in the Pinot Noir, the the oak aging will range from on the early side, 10 months to the long, the wine you're drinking today is uh, 16 months. So that will go through the subsequent vintage and be bottled in the February following that second vintage. Right. Yeah, that's good. That's, um, this is, this wine is beautiful. Oh my gosh, it's so beautiful. Um, Okay. So, and thank you for all of that. You want to talk either one of you, well, I guess, you know, TJ, I'll give this to you since you said you really manage a lot of the the vineyard stuff. Talk about sustainability in the vineyard and then maybe Zach, you can talk about sustainability in the winery. Um, Yeah. You know, the, the important thing to remember is with viticulture, we all live here. We all live where we grow the grapes and we have an extremely light touch. Um, We're very sensitive to preserving the native habitats, um, you know, the waterways. We're very, very, we're very, very light in terms of our inputs. We like to use a lot of compost. Um, We irrigate at night to preserve the water. Um, We do a lot of canopy management which means we like to open up the fruit zone by removing a lot of leaves to take advantage of the wind that's so endemic to Carneros. That wind um, really helps us keep the humidity down in the fruit zone and keeps the disease pressure down. So there's a there's just a tremendous sort of history and love and caretaking of the land um, that goes into every growing season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that. It's so important. And, and for the audience, you know, we talk about sustainability and then people say, well, does that mean it's organic? It, you know, um, the consumer generally thinks organic is the bigger umbrella and that sustainability is just a small piece of that, where it's really 100% the opposite way. Sustainability covers way more than just, you know, chemicals in the vineyard, chemicals in the winery. It 
you know, really is about caring for all of the land that you impact. It cares about the carbon footprint, air pollution, you know, whether or not you take care of your employees, you know, benefits and yep. decent pay and all that. It's such a huge umbrella where organic is it, nothing wrong with organic. Organic can fit nicely in a sustainable program, but it's a tiny part of that. So no, um, that's, I always that's, like to- that's a nice way to contextualize that. I think there are lots of different methods and lots of different approaches to farming. But I think if you're if you if you're very sensitive to the environment, you can be successful taking a lot of approaches. Right, right, very good. Zach, anything in the winery that you that you would that falls in that sustainability umbrella? Oh yeah, I mean, um, you know, I don't think sustainability sustainability starts and stops. Uh, you know, in one part, it's either. Um, you know, it's either (laughs) part of what you do in your entirety, it's one of your stated missions or, or it's not. And so for us, it's, it's been a long, you know, we've been in doing sustainability at different levels for a long time. For instance, um, in the early two thousands, I mentioned, we started as a, as a sparkling house. We eventually added Pinot Noir. There's, um, a reason you don't really want those two wines side by side with each other all the time. And, and with the size of a sparkling house, it, um, it, it made it so that we needed to build a second building. We built the Pinot Noir building in the early two thousands. And when we did that, we covered the roof with solar power, um, solar panels. And, you know, and that did a nice chunk of solar, but, one thing I think it's worth noting is in the early 2000s, solar wasn't what it is today. So at that time, that was in fact the largest solar array, solar array of any winery in the world. And now we're in the process. We've been working for about four years to, to install a microgrid. And what that is, is adding some more panels on the, on the hillside behind the winery, as well as covering um, one of our parking lots with panels, but, and that's going to get us up to a huge chunk of our energy needs, um, being, being covered, um, somewhere around 80%, um, by solar, but we're also installing, um, a battery system and a generator. And what this is going to allow us to do is store that excess energy that we're producing in the batteries. And so anyone who's been in Northern California and, uh, in the last handful of years knows all about the PSPSs, which is when the, the utility shuts the power down due to um, fire danger. It's usually in the fall, and that is the worst possible time to lose power when we're in the middle of harvest. So, um, wow. this, and I thought this, it was bad being a homeowner. <laughs> it could be <laughs> terrible. You're, you're right, because it happens to us all the time. <laughs> exactly. And, and this will allow us to run off grid. Um, when we have to, we're using, you know, as much solar as we can and the battery in the, in, in the peak times, but we could also run off grid, um, if necessary and, and sustain the winery kind of in its own, um, ecosystem of power. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. Cause when we pulled up, we always park in the, in the, uh, parking lot up on the top of the hill. Mm-hmm. And I, for the first time noticed all those so- solar panels behind that part of the winery. And yeah. the ones that we mentioned up on the hill. So that's, that's pretty cool. I love that. Can we talk about, you know, obviously you're the lead winemakers, 
But what kind of roles, say from entry level up to you, what kind of roles, job roles are there inside of the winery or even in, in the vineyard in your case, TJ? Well, um, there's there's so many opportunities. Um, I, I think back often to when Zach and I started, the industry, quite frankly, was a lot smaller. And now it's it's really, really big. And so there's not only opportunities in the uh, what we call the production side, um, which involves um, winemaking, of course, but there's also laboratory support. Uh, there's people who work on the production and bottling lines. There's people who are in um, managing the packaging supplies in bigger wineries. There's tons of opportunities uh, in marketing, in sales. The hospitality side is is incredibly big here at the winery. It's probably our biggest department is serving the public. Uh, and of course, on the vineyard side, there's there's tremendous things to be done too. Managing the vineyards, of course, um, see, doing the day to day operations of growing the vines. And so, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that if you are interested in becoming a winemaker or becoming part of the wine industry. There's many, many ways to come into that. You can come into it uh, with a chemistry background through or biology through the laboratory. You can come through on the hospitality side through food service, restaurant work, getting getting um, familiar with wines and developing your passion for wine. And, you know, I, I happen to study at Davis, but all my classmates there, they we called ourselves born again winemakers because it's it's an industry that has a certain magnetism and romance and when you fall in love with wine and winemaking you're going to have a lifelong journey of learning refining traveling it's just a it's just a career that i don't do not regret my choice at all because it's been such an amazing journey and and it's not over it just keeps going right. so for people who want to be a, become a part of it, I'd say the simplest, most straightforward way is carve out a fall season um, and come out and work a harvest because you will know. You spend three, four months out here and, and you will really know if this is, is the right choice for you. Yeah. And to, to that point, because we talked about this earlier offline, but um, I do, I get tons of questions from students and on Instagram, you know, I want to come out and work a harvest for a weekend. Is that possible? Or a week, you know, take my vacation and work harvest. No, nobody does that anymore. It, internships out here are, are jobs. They're paid jobs and they're a commitment for, you know, multiple weeks, if not multiple months. So it's not something you can do on a week of vacation. There, there probably are some wine regions around the country, smaller regions that might allow for something like that. But, you know, you have to keep in mind, you just don't go out in a, in a, wine, in a vineyard and start picking grapes. It, it all takes training or go into a winery and start, you know, moving wine around in hoses. It takes time to learn it. And so we, that, that has, and also there's the safety and all that. So um, don't get your hopes up about that. But I think TJ coming in and planning that you're going to be here for a while. Yeah. And I, can, I can't tell you how many, I mean, I've met hundreds of winemakers now and a lot of them started off that way. And and then also you sort of find where you want to go with your wine career. And then if you want to go to UC Davis or been to the hospitality side or whatever, you can sort of carve your path and, and start pursuing the education that would, you know, probably be needed as you climb the ladder. But, 
you know, just to push wine around in a, you know, be a, what we call a cellar rat. I don't know, Zach, do you need a college degree to come and pump wine and, you know, do the, the grunt work or the manual labor? Um, no, no, you don't. I think it helps to understand the entire process and the, yeah. the science and the chemistry behind winemaking. But I 100% agree with TJ. The way you get started is to do a harvest. You'll learn really quickly with the early mornings and the hard work, whether you really want to do this or not. Um, you know, there's an old adage. Um, well, there's many about winemaking, but, you know, um, one of them that is probably the most true is winemaking is 90% cleaning. <laughs> and, you know, and sanitation, really good point. <laughs> yeah, sanitation is important. And you, sometimes, you know, in your first couple of harvests, you're sitting there cleaning a tank for the fifth time thinking, what in the world am I doing? But it's all important and it's all part of part of learning. I think doing a harvest is important. And then if you like it, jumping down to the Southern hemisphere and because of the seasonality there, their fall is in March, you know, ish. And so depending where you go, you can get two harvests in a year. And that's really the way to gain experience as a, as a fledgling winemaker. And I think we've all done it, you know, um, that's, that's um, a really great point. That's a really great, and it's a good way to see the world. Yeah, you know, not that you get a lot of time off as an intern, but you know, tack a week on before or after, <laughs> and, and do a little right. vacation while you're there. But yeah, yeah that's that is that's really a, a great point, and that kind of covers you know my usually I ask our guests, and you kind of beat me to it, which is great um, to you know to give us some ideas on how to get into your profession, and I, I think we've covered that really really well. I want to mention for people who are interested, you can learn more about Domain Carneros in general at domaincarneros.com. Uh, uh, but if you're interested in working at Domain Carneros specifically, uh, you can s- there is a place to send your resume. Um, I'll put these both of these links in the show notes, but that would be resume no s at domaincarneros.com if you are interested in, you know, applying for a job. Um, and following in these guys footsteps. So um, all I can say is Domain Carneros, if you're just visiting, it's a, it, it's a, you have to do it at some point in your life. You cannot have the full Napa experience without it. Every guest that comes to Napa, we immediately take them there. And I don't mean that as a commercial, it might sound like one, but I mean that quite sincerely. I have a wine rack full of wine from the wine club and, and only because it's just such a special place. You can get a tour. Are you guys still doing tours? Are, have you opened them up since COVID? The there wine tours? They're open on a more limited basis. Um, yeah, I think just on the weekends, I think. Yeah. Yeah. But if you're here on a weekend, book book the tour. If you want to learn the ins and outs of sparkling wine production and see it in action, it's a really great place. Their wine club is great. Karen, can I, can I butt in real quick? Yes, please. Um, I would urge everybody to come Monday through Thursday. You will have a fantastic experience. The weekends are fun. But the visitation is a lot heavier because that's normally the days that people have off. So we have an amazing hospitality staff that's so knowledgeable. If you come on a Monday or a Tuesday and have some time, they can really you can learn a tremendous amount about the wines, about the winery. And our our servers really know what they're talking about. Yeah, that is a tr- that's a great point, really, for any winery here in Napa. We have gotten really busy, especially since COVID. 
And it, it is a good point. They, they have more time. Um, but also everything is reservation only now everywhere in the Valley. Mm. And you are hard pressed to find reservations anywhere on the weekend, unless you're going to make that reservation months in advance. So that's a, a really, really good point. I have to say my favorite thing about hanging out at Domain Carneros is it's great people watching because you guys get so many people from San Francisco and the Bay Area that can drive up for the day. And wow, I mean, it's a fashion show. It's, it's fun. It's really a lot of international people. It's a, it is a fun place to hang out. And the views, no matter where you're sitting in the winery, in the tasting room area, it's spectacular. Lots of outdoor seating. So, it, I mean, again, I don't really mean this to be a commercial. I say it only because it's really how I feel about, about domain careers. So in any well, case. Aaron, you're such a great supporter. Thank you so much. We really well, appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you guys so much for hosting us so often and really appreciate your time. Zach, TJ, you've been such, so informative, passionate. I, I feel like now Damn, I wish I would have been an intern when I was a little younger. I think it's a little late for me now, but maybe I should have done that and become a winemaker. You really are very inspiring. And, and we well, I'm I'm happy, and I'm sure Zach would say the same, happy to provide our email addresses. And if you have any of your students or listeners who who you know, have further questions or, you know, need some um, just want to talk about the career more or need some resources for finding an internship, we can probably help with that. Well, that's really generous. I will also add those to the show notes so we can, you can give me those offline. And so anyone listening, just check out the show notes, wherever you listen to your podcasts and, uh, and those will be there. So, okay, guys, thank you again so much. And thanks for the treat of the wine this morning. I'm just so excited. I'm going to have a nice day ahead of me. <laughs> thank you, Take Karen. Care, guys. Thank you, Karen. Thanks to all of you for joining, and I hope today's show has inspired you to make a career out of your passion for wine. If you'd like to have a one-on-one -on -one career coaching session with me, just use the link in the show notes for more information or to schedule an appointment. This podcast is all about helping you follow your dreams, so feel free to send us your suggestions for guests or topics through our email link that's listed in the show notes. And it means an awful lot when you share us with friends or leave a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll join us again for our next episode.